podcast starts. Hello everyone. If this is your first time listening to this show, then welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. And thanks for sticking with us. This show is a show that talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about, just because that's who we are. This week is the first week that we'll be releasing our reviews of films screened at the current Grimfest Festival, the Manchester Horror Film Festival that this year, like so many, has gone digital. So we have a number of hosts who vary week to week, but I am T.D. Velasquez in Greater Manchester, and as always, you can call me Dan. I'm on my own right now, but during the course of the programme, I'll be joined by Kirsty Warrow from Shropshire, Ian Winterton from, although I should say, in Cheshire, and Stella Gaynor in Manchester, and we're going to be reviewing a bunch of movies. We'll be talking about H.P. Lovecraft's The Deep Ones, The Horror Crowd, Unearth, The Oak Room and 12 Hour Shift. All of those movies have been screened already at Grimfest, even though the festival itself is not over yet. Out of the four of us, at least two of us have seen every single movie. So for each film, there's going to be two of us contributing particularly and the teams are going to alternate. That's the nature of today's show, really. I'm going to skip over to them quite soon. Just to say apologies that this episode has come out a day late. We've been a little bit run off our feet with getting special bonus episodes out this week to lead into Grimfest. Hope you've been enjoying those. Um, I also want to say there's not much in the way of news, um, horror or otherwise, that I can report on my own. Although I wish Stella was here, because if she was, I'd be able to say to her, what the hell is this? The Walking Dead, the World Beyond spin-off, which I hear has come to Amazon Prime, uh, because I'm quite intrigued by that. I have no idea what it is. Um, In terms of recommendations, uh, well, I've just started watching the second series of Ghosts, which we've mentioned uh, before on this show. Kirsty and I both like that. Um, It's a very funny, slightly macabre. A BBC sitcom about a haunted house and all episodes of all two series. Um, all two, but or even both. All episodes of both series are available currently on the BBC iPlayer um, in the UK. So uh, that's there for you to dive into. And I hope you enjoy our reviews. We'll be back next Friday with more reviews of the remaining films showing over this weekend. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the movie H.P. Lovecraft's The Deep Ones. Now, um, Kirsty is here to review this with Ian. And Kirsty, you were the person who encouraged me to start reading H.P. Lovecraft several years ago. Um, I have to uh, admit for the listeners' um, information that I haven't seen the film, but um, <laughs> I'm quite interested to know what yes. your thoughts are. So could you tell us a little bit about what the film's about and then... And your initial reaction? Yes. Um, okay. So the film is um, uh, kind of centres around a a a couple, um, Alexandria and uh, uh, Petri, <laughs> um, who uh, arrive in California, um, and they uh, travel to um, somewhere 
I don't know, Malibu, Santa Monica, you know, by the by the coast, very lovely. Um, and they have, I don't know, Airbnb'd a lovely beachside villa from a an older gentleman and his much younger and very pregnant wife. Um, it transpires that um, uh, uh, Alex and Petri have um, recently miscarried. They definitely want to be parents. Um, and the moment that they arrive, um, uh, at this, um, you know, kind of seaside villa, um, and get involved with uh, this kind of, kind of hippie culty community. Who, you know, as soon as you see them, you go, okay, here are the wrong ones. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of, uh, it's probably what I wrote down is it's Rosemary's baby via Stepford Wives with H.B. Lovecraft kind of mythology. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. It, yeah, it's um so um yeah, for, from on. your knowledge of Lovecraft it's it, is it kind of not really a direct adaptation of any one story it's just kind of brought in bits. This is probably Ian's area of the man. I mean I'm 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 a fan broadly of Lovecraft but not you know I've not read every, everything. I'm I'm aware that you know they're kind of characters, characters and sort of it's draws on some of Lovecraft's uh, short stories but Ian, do you want to chip in in it's, terms of its yeah, origins? It's, it's more, well, obviously it's set modern day. Um, mm. it's, it's in Ventura. I don't know if they ever name it, but that's where the location is. Oh, okay. Um, I remember them telling me it was, it all came about because they had, they got offered, do you want to make a Splattergore movie in, in, in my, in my uh, beach home? And he went, ooh, the ocean. <laughs> looked, at, looked, at, looked at the ocean, chabbed the, uh, Chad Ferris, the director and the writer, looked at the ocean and went, started thinking, oh, isn't there like a big Lovecraft thing to do with the deep ones? And he hadn't read them for centuries, but um, getting back into it, um, decided yes. Um, and also they're, they're nicely out of, uh, out of copyright. So you can do yes, that's you why we all love Lovecraft the most. <laughs> you, do what you, you do what you like with H.P. Lovecraft. Um, yes. So he encouraged it even in his lifetime, just add to yeah. the mythos. But this, um, I think it's day. It's a short story called Dagon, and then Shadow, Shadow over Innsmouth, um, which they've kind of used as jumping off points. They Shadow over Innsmouth is is to do with an isolated fishing community, but there's a lot more obvious interbreeding. Like this, yes, this, I've read that one. Yeah, there's there's there's, there's sort of in that book. There's sort of there's sort of people with funny eyes and but they take as you mentioned the Rosemary's Babies thing which they sort of uh, they mentioned in the interview as well as an obvious thing they kind of took they took the idea of the interbreeding and they gave it a sort of they gave it a sort of Rosemary's Baby a bit more of a it's a much rarer thing there's not like loads of them yeah, okay who are they're yeah I think I think the implication is they're more worshippers than than yeah. half than half frogmen um, right. And then they summon. You don't really see a lot of monsters, apart from okay. apart from probably the best scene in the film is uh, is the birth scene. I would argue. Oh, well, well, before <laughs> we get to that, so Kirsty, um, so what was your impression of the movie? Oh, then? okay. Um, um, I mean, there's quite a lot that I I thought was quite interesting about it. Um, I really liked the fact that actually this was a, a film that. Um, uh, kind of focused more on actors uh, who were sort of 40 plus 
um which okay. you know in horror we don't tend to find our kind of protagonists who are it's, it's know, relatively yeah, right. I, yeah. I, I um i know of at least one movie where the writer was ordered not to make any of the characters over 40. <laughs> yeah. yeah oh it, so, happens all, it happens all the time yeah <laughs> so i kind of i kind of like that about it um it has i mean i think what what's what's interesting about the whole the the kind of the idea of this kind of group this community of people who are sort of you know kind of worshippers of the um you know kind of lovecraftian deity um is that it fits really nicely with a sort of kind of general sense of californian weirdness um right. so that nobody's nobody questions it too much because you know it's california and that's people just <laughs> crazy out there um so you know that was kind of that was that was interesting about it and i like the way that it sort of you know it kind of it knew what it was in terms of it knew that it was kind of rosemary's baby it makes reference to stepford wives there were bits of it um particularly the kind of beginning i think that felt a bit jawsy as mm -hmm. well um but uh yes but but <laughs> is that it i mean it is clearly a kind of b movie um and whether or not it's kind of embracing that aesthetic intentionally or not i don't know <laughs> um i wasn't convinced by many of the performances i have to say um oh yeah i mean it just it just it, it felt for uh yeah kind of low budget movie it just felt like it could have been a little less obviously low budget but then i was looking into kind of um it's chad ferrin um yeah maybe that's kind of his yeah so i think maybe i've just maybe sort of slightly misinterpreted that as maybe something that is just kind of his aesthetic and his sort of sensibility as a horror filmmaker kind of yeah as ian said splatter gore which isn't i mean it felt kind of expectational at times and that's not really my bag um, there's an interesting kind of character in the middle of it who um, seems to be a trans woman um, and yeah. there's, you know, and I, I've noticed a lot of um, kind of comments online about, well, that's really good, but I'm not sure that it is because they're kind of really playing on the kind of, the character is particularly creepy. Right. Um, so well, I'm not sure that's necessarily the, kind of... Yeah, I did, because I was, I was too polite while I was interviewing them to mention that because I did think mm. they were dwelling on the freakishness which is yeah bang out of order um yeah i would say um mm. but yeah um i i'd um i'd say i did like the uh performances uh in lots of the places especially um robert miano who plays this sort of who plays russell who's like the cult leader yeah sort of charismatic he's uh he's good value for money and his real life wife um sylvia spross who got to give birth to the uh the tentacled thing. Yes. That's not too much of a spoiler. <laughs> so is she, <laughs> is she the much younger wife that, that Kirsty described? No, she's not, oh, well, I suppose, she, I, suppose well, she is, yeah. I suppose she is a bit younger, but in real life they are married as well. Right. So okay. That might just be California, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was, there was certainly something about the, 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 yeah, <laughs> the film that it, it sort of had that, uh, uh, that kind of slightly exploitative kind of California sort of you know kind of erotica kind of aesthetic going mm. for it with and i, and I felt like, <laughs> like the kind of <laughs> bad, bad acting or at least the not overly convincing acting at times kind of fitted into that as a Christ. yeah um yeah um but i mean there were you know i think that the film 
like as it sort of moves towards its its kind of climax as it were it gets progressively kind of more um heightened as you'd expect um the kind of use of visual and practical effects are not the most convincing i've ever seen in okay. my uh time but they are you know i think by that point i sort of embraced it as a sort of kind of blue b movie kind of pastiche and so it was kind of fun okay. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't so know you'd agree would, with that Ian. I would say I'd say it's definitely B movie. Um in terms just, of the practical effects and things. Well in yeah, in, in terms of in terms of the general feel of it, it is sort of I don't I would agree as well that I don't know how intentional it is. Mm. Or because um because there are times when you feel that's that's just went wrong. And then there are other times when you think I don't know, when I spoke to them and I said, well, the monster at the end reminds me of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm. They uh, they were like, yeah, yeah. And, mm. uh, and I did wonder how much of they were, how much of that was spin and spin after the, after the, uh, after the fact, after yeah. the mm. fact or, but the thing is, it does, you know, it, it's, I think the main problem with it is, is um, it's not scary at all because of the tone. Yeah. And there are so that to me is a waste of Lovecraft because Lovecraft yeah. should scare the Jesus out of you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's weird that um, it's just my, my favorite Lovecraft thing at the moment is, is on BBC radio. Um, I don't know if you've heard the whisper in darkness. Yes. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. so no, I haven't. I keep, so mentioning it. I keep mentioning every time I come on here. Um, Julian Simpson's. Um, yeah. I, I mentioned it to them in my, in my sort of audio and that has actually, I've, I've listened to it by myself at night in bed and have had to turn the light on which which certainly wow. that wouldn't happen watching this movie because it's fun and mm. i imagine at the festival um people will have had a good laugh yeah it's, it's, it's uh, you know and i did like i did like the rubber tent you know it's rubber tentacles it's a man in a rubber suit who looks kind of there's something about him what's the you're, you're a trekkie aren't you dan What's the Hi. what's the green the green monster that has a big wrestling match with Kirk? <laughs> that doesn't really narrow it down much. I think <laughs> no, you no, probably one, mean the Gorn. The Gorn. The Gorn. Do you mean the one? The one yeah, where I think, I think it, I'm, I, I think I know enough about Trek to know it is the Gorn. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. kind of reminded me of the Gorn. Um, right. A bit in the in that it was yeah. Well, the Gorn famously has a kind of a very, very static face. And I think yeah. when they did the special edition, they CGI'd its eyes. So its eyes yeah. move a bit, but it doesn't change the fact that it's an entire rest of its head. Yeah. It's <laughs> completely expressionless. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It, 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 it's not scary and it could be really scary. I mean, to, you know, Rosemary's Baby is scary. Yeah. Um, many, you know, it's weird because uh, the Whisper in Darkness, the next, the next instalment, um, they've done Charles Dexter Ward, and they've done, um, uh, and they've done, is it the Whisper in Darkness? Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, and they've called the whole thing that now. And then th the one they just, it's just ended on the cliffhanger of, uh, of I'm off to Innsmouth. Right. Yes. So they're doing, they're doing this book next, and I, and that, I mean that is a very frightening, intense story. Yeah, yeah, and also, also. The audio, um, Julian Simpson's audio, is set in the present day. It's a bunch mm. of podcasters investigating crime, mm. and then the crimes turn out to be Lovecraftian stories. 
but in a world where Lovecraft doesn't exist, and it's absolutely brilliantly updated. Yeah, because right. because they, there's nothing there's nothing Lovecraft could work, you know, in ancient Rome as well as it could work in the far future, because yeah. the monsters are massive and you know they're they're the eternal, first. aren't they? Yeah, they're yeah. eternal, and they're they're you know we're just a we're just a flicker in a flicker in the eye of creation as humans. Um, That's the terror of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was not meant we should voyage far. So, I mean, it sounds it's a fairly mixed, mixed to to negative review for the deep ones. Then, in Siskel and Ebert style, would either of you give it a thumbs up? In, uh, is there any audience that you'd recommend it to? I'd I'd say it's 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 good fun. It's got it's got I'm I'm. They're 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 really nice people that made it, and it's not you know, and it has its moments, but. If you want a really well-crafted, scary movie, then this ain't it. If you want something where you can go, this these guys look like they were having a lot of fun, mm. and there's rubber tentacles, and there's a really, I would say, a really good, some really good practical effects. Um, okay. Not necessarily scary, but the the sort of whole birth sequence where there's lots of there's lots of tentacles coming out from uh, between. Sylvia Spross's legs um, is uh, is is quite effective. Um, okay. I don't know if you'd agree. <laughs> well, well, I think, I think it's, it's, it's affecting. affecting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> effective. Um, okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think this is for me is one of those movies that um, you know, not that this is something that's like to happen anytime soon. But, but I think if you, you know, kind of saw it at a at a festival or at a you know a kind of B movie kind of double feature type thing and you were with uh, a lot of friends and the cinema was packed and everybody had a couple of glasses of wine it's probably a really good time okay. yeah all right that's yeah. great and, um, i would say in a way that's two thumbs up then no with with, with strong <laughs> qualification yes yeah yeah if you're drunk um <laughs> <laughs> but uh i also i'd like to see chad ferrin's other movies because they sound from their titles they sound like there were a lot more. This is this is dumb but fun. Like his last movie that a lot of the same actors worked on was Exorcism at sixty thousand feet, which then, right. which I kind of want to see just from the title. Yeah, yeah, right. the plane, but it's like Snakes on a Plane meets The Exorcist. So uh, <laughs> that sounds that sounds fun, and a lot of no, the I think that, and they're all. That, they're, I think they're I think they're a nice little team. People. Oh, nice one. Well, that's definitely a recommendation for that movie, anyway. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So that's, that's all we reviewed. That's <laughs> uh, Chad Ferrans, H.P. Lovecraft's The Deep Ones. Um, I think that's a, a qualified recommendation. Oh, two thumbs up. It's it's two beers in. Two beers in <laughs> and some tentacles. So here we are to discuss The Horror Crowd. Uh, it's Dan here, but actually I haven't seen this particular film. Luckily, though, I am joined by two people who have. Uh, Ian, say hello, sir. Hello, sir. Thank <laughs> you, sir. And Stella, you also must say hello, sir. Hello, sir. <laughs> so, so Ian, uh, tell us about The Horror Crowd. You obviously interviewed the, the director. I did, and yeah. saw the movie. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a documentary um, about lots and lots and lots of horror directors. Um, so many horror directors 
Um, and uh, Ruben Pla, um, he's appeared in uh, Insidious and you know and various other films. Um, and he's a he's a when I interviewed him, he's a very nice man. Um, and he's and he had he basically recorded these in uh, in quite a short space of time. It wasn't like one of those ones that was done over months and months and months. Once he, because he has the resources and, you know, and, and a studio, well, he has friends with cameras and he lives in LA. Um, once he started doing it, he was just able to get loads and loads of people in like a revolving door by the sound of it. Uh, okay. And as we heard in the interview, he, he sort of, uh, he had 40 hours of footage or thereabouts, which he turned into 90 minutes. Um, so it's... Uh, I don't know what you. What did you think of it, Stella? You saw um, it. You saw it at Fright Fest. I think, I think overall, yeah, I did see it at Fright Fest. Um, it was an honour to see it at Fright Fest, and overall, I did really enjoy it because I was a bit concerned that it might just be um, sort of rehashing histories of this is how certain films came to be and I was concerned it would just be stuff that we already know um but it was actually quite a personal look at all these filmmakers and creators and actors um as to why why horror I think was was the nicest thing about it rather than just being well then this happened and then we got the money for this and then we got the green light for that it was more an exploration of of themselves and why they're in in the business that they're that they're in and lots of their reasons for for liking horror sort of rang true to me as well. So it, it I guess it set them up as not being these stars. They were just they were just fans, people that like it and the, and the way they talked about it was very very personal, which I really enjoyed about the film. Yeah, yeah, and it was a, it was a real insight into what it's actually like to be mm. in LA, not just in the horror business, but but I guess in any sort of any sort of genre, well, just trying to yeah. make it in the yeah. business from from actors yeah. to directors, yeah. and the fact that you had some people who had struck gold, yeah, um, yeah. like Oren Pelly and people like that, um, mm. uh, with uh, with Paranormal Activity and uh, and then Insidious, uh, but they were exactly the same as the people. That were making, that were making stuff that hadn't done so well, or or had mm. very limited but was much loved, cult success. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which which is kind of nice in a way, and at the same time, I can I can see there was a little bit of bitterness. I can't remember the name of the director, but it's probably best not to name him anyway. There was a little bit of <laughs> there was a little bit of bitterness. You know, the the the, the whole section on the uh, the business is a bitch. Um, they have this great big section, don't they, where the business is horrible, and that's movies in general. And yeah. there was a little yeah. bit of the why them, why not me? But you just we're doing yeah. it for love anyway, and you tell yourself yeah, there's that. There's a lot of honesty there, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you you get that in every every creative business, you know. And it's only made worse by social media because you're going oh. Really well done, thanks. You've got a TV commission. I'm delighted for you, bastard. <laughs> Get the voodoo doll out. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we hate it when our friends become successful and uh, and other other Morrissey lyrics. But um, but the, yeah, um, 
did I did feel like it was a little bit scattergun in that I wasn't surprised I wasn't surprised it didn't have it didn't have as much shape as I think it could have had. It was a bit mm. random. They did a lot in 90 minutes. They did a lot yeah, in 90 I think, minutes. I think he did too much and if he'd if he'd found uh, I mean, as I said to him, it, it it reminded me in terms of its access to so many talented people. To have you ever seen yeah. the Aristocats? The Aristocrats, rather, it's a very different film. So the Arist the Aristocrats is uh, is a film by Paul Provenza and Penn Gillette, you know from Penn and Teller. I think that's oh, yeah. his name. Um, and it's basically the access they have, similarly to uh, Ruben has here, is because. They're stand-ups, and they have every single stand-up, especially from the American scene. But they also have Eddie Izzard and 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 so many people. Every, you know, watching it is just like, oh my god! If you don't if you don't like this comedian, there'll be another one along in two minutes. But the whole thing is in the Aristocrats. It's all it's all fixed around this joke that they think no one knows where it started, but it's from the vaudeville era, and. After hours, when the audience aren't there and your only audience is your peers, you tell this joke, and it's it starts with a family come into a casting agent's office, and then you describe their act, and their act can is the the idea the act can be anything you want. You're just there to riff on it and make and make the audience laugh, but generally as scatological and as unbelievably offensive as possible is the act. And then at the end, you reach a sort of breathless climax, usually literally several climaxes and most of the uh, things. And then you go, and the guy goes, well, that was interesting. What's your act called? And they go, the aristocrats. And that's the joke. Um, and that, and that, fi that film is amazing. And I would recommend it to horror fans because uh, not that there's any horror in it whatsoever. Although it does have... It does have some. It does. It does have. It does have the South Park kids referencing the uh, the burning victims of nine eleven during their little sketch. So that's as horrific as it gets. Um, but um, anyway, but that film is absolutely amazing, especially you know if if because it centres around this joke. So it's everybody telling this joke with a little bit of stuff, a little bit of people talking about other things. But um, but uh, but I thought with this, it didn't have, it didn't coalesce around enough things. So uh, <laughs> it didn't coalesce around enough things. Um, and then he sort of, it's like he sort of got into Jump Cup Cafe, kind of later on. And part of me thought, could there be a documentary about the Jump Cup Cafe? I think they really could. could What's talk the about Jump Cup Cafe? Oh, that is that's true. Yeah, you haven't seen it, have you? Basically, sort of halfway through, he starts going on about the Jump Cut Cafe, which is a cafe where in LA, which is now a sushi bar, which is sort of legendary, and it seemed to be where every you know you didn't know who was going to turn up there. So like, you turn up there, everyone would be with their laptops, drinking their lattes, eating their mac and cheese, and their chicken sandwiches, and Wes Craven would walk in, or you know, big big names of horror from all all the different generations would walk in. And that, to me, the Jump Cut Cafe, the documentary, yeah. is probably yeah, yeah. is probably the documentary that could be made. Yeah. But that's not what we got here. I think he just started talking about he just started talking about horror in general, and he does have he does have different subject areas. 
but it's a bit, okay. it's a bit, and it's all really interesting, uh, especially as a sort of if if you're interested in you know like. It sounds like the kind of thing that might be a good first documentary as a horror fan if you've not seen any others because we live in a world where, you know, people make like very interesting four-hour documentaries about one film or a two-hour documentary about one minute of one film, like the one about the psycho shower scene, which is really good. Um, so you've got to be careful when you kind of go really general Um but I guess maybe that's what sounds interesting to me is is kind of as a it could be like a starter pack. I, um, I'd imagine it probably wouldn't have much in it that I don't know. And certainly it sounds like the interviewees that he's got are people who've done other documentaries about horror. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that amazing when when they have the section on which you know what 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 was it got you into horror it's all the usual suspects <laughs> uh not, not the usual suspects yeah they had lots right. of things in common which which i liked seeing how many things they all had in common when they described like their younger years and i've got written down here from my scrolling notes and when i was watching it um that lots of them or one of the sections was called being the weird kid and they all had sort of, I was right. the weird kid, I was into this and I was into that. And there was so much overlap between them all. And it was like, <laughs> and then you all found each other. Oh. <laughs> Isn't this lovely? And then the other thing that I found really interesting was towards the end of it, lots of them were talking about, so lots of these horror legends, you know, they were talking about how a lot of them now have TV series on mm. their resumes, as it were. And, you know, and TV, a TV series, I think one of them even said it, TV's, but working on TV now not being a dirty word. You know, it's not TV horror is not a step down for horror filmmakers anymore. And I thought that that's been an interesting shift that if you'd have made this documentary 30 years ago, no one mm. would have been saying that. It was like, well, I did this TV thing, but, you know, we don't really talk about that. But now it was like, oh, yeah, we did this on TV and I did that on TV. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's up there in their achievements rather than, like I said, TV being a dirty word. And I thought that for me, sort of for my research and my sort of stuff that I write about, I found that interesting and um it supports a great deal of what i'm going to say in my book as well <laughs> it's like, oh, i was right <laughs> oh good so that's good so that's handy <laughs> that's a footnote there yeah <laughs> yeah the presence of streaming services um and it was started before the streaming services but so much content is getting made um so, you know there were homes for so many horror films now because like anything with a spaceship in it, anything that's horror will be watched. And it's the same reasons why those, you know, why horror was always a successful genre, because it's a genre where you can get an audience without a star. You can get an audience and have a low budget. And those those economics are still what are affecting the sort of, you know, the generation now that, get a little bit of cash off Netflix or Shudder in the case of Host or whatever. I'd love to know what their budget was. I'm sure it wasn't very much. But, um, but um, yeah, I mean, again, it's a bit like, it's a good way to start talking about conversations because every single one of the little sections could be, like they have a whole section on women in horror. That could be, you know, that could, could be, be a series, that though. could be, a, yeah, that could be a series. It could be a film. I mean, you'd call it horror chicks or something deliberately derogative. <laughs> I think if I, if I could get hold of it, I would definitely show it in week one 
of a horror course and say, look, all, all the, this is, like you said, like a horror documentary sort of 101 type thing. Look, watch this first. Because there was a documentary that I used to always show um, called called The American Nightmare. That's a good one. But it kind of stops at around mid-90s-ish. So I, I don't know. That's, it'll still be on the watch list, but I would I would definitely include the documentary at the start of a horror a horror course because, like you said, all those elements to talk about. And you could say to students, each one of those things could be an essay for research. They're all elements that would be well worth looking at on their own. And it'd also give them, you know, here's a list of names as well, you know, for work to look at while you while you're studying horror. So I think it it will it'll turn out to be useful for me in the future. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's it's so it sounds good resource. Good resource. Um, sorry, Ian, what are you going to say? Well, I was going to say, Dan, it, you, you sort of say I, I, I bet you I bet you it hasn't got any new information for you on it. Um, but it it had it literally has. I mean, if you look at it on IMDb, there are I think there are about sixty names, and each of those names is an interviewee. Uh, and there were people I've never heard of, and there were films yeah. that were featured. Yeah. Like I've, I've kind of vaguely heard of the taking of De- the taking of Deborah Logan, just okay. somewhere right on the edge of my transom. But it made me really want to watch it. Uh, yeah, and yeah. now, now, have you seen it? No, no, I... no, no. And it's by it's by um, Adam Adam Robitel, um, and and it's got really so. So there were so many films out there. That you might think, oh, mm. every little tiny little cult movie, you probably know about. But actually, this is a good reminder. It's a, it's yeah. quite, it's quite a yeah. big well, pond. I, 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 and I'm going to watch the taking of Deborah Logan because it sounds awesome. Right. Well, no, I mean that's been the journey that I've been on with this podcast, as I've said before, is learning about how much I don't know, really. But um, so from Stella's point of view, because I'm conscious that we're we're running out of time uh, to devote to this movie. So if it, if it was to turn up on Shudder or, you know, Arrow uh, Video or something like that, Stella, you'd be happy to recommend it to your students. So Ian, yeah, you'd recommend yeah. it as well by the sound of it. Oh, I would, yeah, with with, with caveats. But the caveats yeah. are, the caveats are, it's such a dearth of, it's such such a huge amount of information um, that it's not, it's it's far from being a perfect documentary. It's it's it's, but it's got so like as a primer. Of yeah. of of all the horror stuff, um, <laughs> like like all the horror stuff. It's and it, obviously it's obviously it's not even all the horror stuff, but it's it's about sixty mostly Americans. Yeah, it's sixty yeah. mostly Americans who are who are working today. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, and uh, and you also get to see um, oh, what's his damn name? The go- the goth guy who did Sleigh Bells. Sleigh oh, yeah. bells. Um, oh, bugger. You get Parker. It is. <laughs> right, we're going to have a pause here, and you're going to Spooky Dan. <laughs> Spooky Dan Walker. You get to see. That's it. Yeah. Spooky Dan Walker. Spooky Dan Walker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so again, he's, again, he's again, Dan. Funny. Is that a new name to you? Because I bet you to yeah. lots of people it isn't. But he is. Right. He is. Uh, he is very goth, and he did he did sleigh bells, which I've heard of, and it's it is that's another reminder is it has, it has a reminder of the breadth of horror, um, from people that are like oh my god the witch is so slow and amazing, to I want I want blood pumping out 
like a sort of <laughs> you know like a Sam Raimi on steroids movie um and that you know and everything in between so horror can be so many different things and all oh, but but everybody's I think the you could talk forever about what these things have in common I think one thing they have in common is you can get away with a with a downer ending and no one minds <laughs> is uh <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, is one of the main oh, things yeah. you you go into a horror film literally not knowing it's going to be all right in the end because you've kind of turned up for it not to be all right in the end yeah yeah paid for that yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right guys well let's wrap that up that sounds like two thumbs up in siskel and ebert style for the horror crowd so Nice work, guys. Well, we'll uh, we'll move on to all the delights in the festival. Yes. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Stella. Thanks, Dan. Okay, so I'm here with Ian, and we're going to talk about the movie On Earth. Um, I just watched this film yesterday as we record, so I think I'm kind of best placed to describe the storyline. But what I will say, first of all, is... If you're going off the poster, um, don't really go off the poster because On Earth has the tagline of a fracking horror movie and it has this kind of um, fairly lyrical-looking poster um, with a woman standing in the middle of a field in a kind of ethereal style. I don't really think that well represents the movie. It is a horror movie about fracking. Um, It's set in the present day uh, in Pennsylvania, and it details the lives of two different families um, who are both struggling. One family is a family of farmers, and the other family owns uh, an auto repair business. Um, they're both going through financial hardships, and one fa- well, and both families get um, an offer made to them by a, a gas company. Uh, which I think is called Patriots Exploration, which is a great name, Uh um, offers to buy their land um, for a fracking development. Um, One of the families takes up the offer and uh, their lives are affected from there on. Um, And the horror, kind of the fantasy element of the horror comes in, whereby the fracking operation uncovers something which is under the ground and which then starts to affect events. Um, I don't want to go too much more into that because there's obviously spoilers in there, and, but it's a very slow burn horror movie. Mm. Um, you know, that I think the fracking operation doesn't even arrive until half an hour in um, and the nature of the horror doesn't start to become clear until really the last third. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very... Um, character focused and um and uh kind of realistic ian you interviewed the co-directors john c lyons and dorota Schweiss, and that was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago yeah um, so uh, i wasn't present for that interview but I've, I've listened back to it and um uh i you know obviously they had very serious intentions to mm-hmm. because they're, they're from pennsylvania um, and they've seen communities affected by the encroachment of fracking operations, and they wanted to make a movie about that. And they also thought that kind of the most effective way of doing that was to turn it into a horror story. So to make kind of a horror metaphor for 
a real life horror or a real life issue. I think John uh, mentioned things like the incredible shrinking man mm-hmm. uh, as, as influences where kind of B movies have used fantastic subject matter to talk about the real world. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a very well-intentioned and um, well done film for the most part. It has a great cast, including a number of kind of legendary actors, really um, top builders, Adrienne Barbeau, um, John Carpenter's ex-wife and star of his movies, uh, Escape from New York and The Fog, uh, and also things like Creep Show and Swamp Thing. Uh, it's also got Mark Blucas, who Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans will be very familiar with because he played Riley, um, yeah. and uh, Alison McCarthy from movies like Iron Man. Um, they're the kind of name actors, but every actor in it is really good. Um, it's it's a good showcase for Adrienne Barbeau, especially. She plays kind of the matriarch of one of the families, um, of the farming family. And it's kind of quite a meaty role. Um, however, I have to say that for me, the movie wasn't entirely successful or satisfying. And what did you think, Ian? I'm, yeah, it's because it's so laudable and there's so much to like um in it i still think i've come to the same conclusion as you that it's it's it falls between two stools there's during our interview they were they were they were um john and dorota were were very much well some people don't understand this film because it's we're not following the rules and we're not you know Hmm. it's, it's an intelligent movie and i and I'd get what they're saying, but at the same time, I was there going, the, the rules are kind of, they are there for a reason. They do work for a reason. If, if you called it, it's so, I think if, if they went one way or the other, if they basically they had, they could have just gone, this is going to be a really hard hitting drama about fracking and the effect on communities. Cause it's, there's a sort of exploration of, of this rural rural Pennsylvania around Lake around Lake Erie, mm. um, which which John grew up in, and they still live fairly near there now. It's absolutely fantastic. I, yeah, I, I loved I loved all that. Um, and then it's, let's and then, let's say that let, because mm. I, it is basically two movies, and mm. the first half of it, which is a family drama and about how these families are affected by the fracking operation, is really successful. I loved it. Um, and you know, you believe in the characters, you believe in the world. Mm. Um, it's, it's well made. And it, it even has a level of horror to it before the horror elements come in, because although I have no personal experience of, you know, living near a fracking operation, you know, I hear, I've read stories in the, in the press and things about the noise, the dust, um, the health problems, which come with living, by or near to a fracking site mm. um, and how that has really affected people's lives. And once that part of the story kind of comes in there, you really feel that. You feel how it's affected them. Um, there's, and there's a subliminal kind of horror theme to that because it's almost as if the family who sold their land to the frackers have done a deal with the devil and they gradually realise that. Yeah. Um, and and they, they're not going to get 
what they thought they were promised from it, but they are going to suffer the consequences. And there is a genuine sense of dread that, that builds up. Um, I think that's very greatly aided by a fantastic musical score, mm. um, which is kind of full of droning um, and, and kind of, in a way, really evokes the kind of the constant drilling sound of the frackers, even before that happens in yeah. the movie, the, the music score um, is already doing that. Um, I, I'm trying to find the name of the music composer. It's a woman called Jane. Mm. Uh, Jane Saunders. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I like the uh, music as well. You know, uh, the, the, and the in the the cinematography is uh, is amazing as well. Um, Una Lee, uh, she's just um, both both directors spoke highly of her. She's got a painterly quality. Dorota is a painter as well as a director and so the idea was that they would work together because they both have a painterly sort of eye and that really comes across it looks you know it really feels earthy and it really feels real and the you know there's there's, there's much to recommend in yeah in in it it's it's almost like the journey is more fun than the destination because, well because i'm like okay this if if we were watching that film and then the other elements worked better then it'd be absolutely brilliant but the fact is i think well, the trouble they, is i, I think they chose to do a horror film without making a horror film well i think that it's without, two without movies, earning the horror the, the problem is that it's two movies it, mm. it, it's a drama and then it becomes a horror movie but the two aren't really connected and I found that that shift kind of annoyed me. Um, not because I think there's a problem with shifting genre halfway through. You can do that very effectively. But I did find that when the horror elements came into it, they weren't really satisfying enough. Um, or rather, it's a little bit of too little, too late, but also not really clear enough what's going on um you know if you the, the the i if you ask me to describe the plot of the movie well i just have and the the plot about the families and their relationship with the fracking operation and things that's clear i'm not really clear about what the plot was with the stuff that came up from the earth yeah Although it makes me think of uh either an episode of doom watch or i think there's a doctor who where they have some poison oil well, no, there's, it's a classic Doctor Who plot, is big industry digs up something which it shouldn't do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but, so obviously it goes this, back to, to uh, Quatermass as well. Yeah, yeah, but this movie is not that movie. Um, you know, it do, because, it, because the movie is not... A, if, if this was Doctor Who or Doomwatch or whatever, mm. then the focus would be to some extent on the, the industrial complex... Mm -hmm. and the people running it and what they dig up and how they deal with it but this movie is all about the families on the outside there are no speaking characters from the company no no apart no, from no, the guy no. again who comes initially to to, to yeah. sell them uh, to buy the land from them and i think that that's brilliant i think the way that they portray the um uh, the fracking company as a kind of faceless 
uh, machine that yeah. just affects these people's lives without really thinking about it is brilliant. And I love the way that, um, you know, later in the movie when the family who've sold their, their land find mm. out they're not really going to make a lot of money from it. They, mm. they don't find that out. They don't confront a person from the company about that. They just get a letter and yeah, read yeah. it. And it's all done completely remotely. And I think that was completely the right approach for this movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say that because of the half an hour at the beginning, mm. you know, we care about those characters because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and therefore that's... I was into it. And also when the fracking plant arrives and they start digging and you get these kind of moody shots of the mm. drills under the ground and they're uncovering this stuff and it doesn't really explain what it is. It's all done visually. Mm. I, w- I was in uh, and the tension is building and you can see that people are getting ill and there's dust everywhere. It all, it all kinds of works together and I was still into it. But yeah. it's only really towards the end when I realised that the horror stuff that had started to happen wasn't going to be explored much because it was clearly near the end of the film. Yeah, and, yeah. And then, and then the film did end, and I just yeah. kind of went, with okay. Some, with some body horror, which was quite effective. Some good body horror, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you don't see enough of it. Um, no, no, and, also, it's a, and it also feels very strange because of the nature of the film. Like, like we keep saying, it's two different films. And it, it and it almost felt to me with this rich material and and this sort of access to this to this rural Pennsylvania and the fracking, mm. you could have built a sort of you know a really good drama like a three billboards type yeah, yeah. thing, which you know which you know deals with this thing and maybe this rivalry, this one decision, one of them takes the money, one of them doesn't leads to murder or leads to just just some some sort of big drama and it didn't need the the body horror aspect so it it falls between two stools for me and then and then the fact it's all over the poster and with a weird tagline that makes it sound like it's going to be a splatter gore horror because it's a fracking horror movie Yeah, yeah that sounds like you know people's heads are going to fall off and things and and it's going to be full-on gory gory thrills late night gory thrills and uh yeah and it's and it's it's really not that at all so it's it's uh it's its own beast i guess and john and dorota were very uh very much would stand by you know stand by their thing and it's got loads loads of things going on um it's got loads of intelligence and and loads of and it's it's been picked up and it's going around um yeah so you know it's just it's just didn't quite didn't quite work for me, and I, I, I think it's because I'm probably a, I'm probably a structure whore, who, uh, mm. who, who was there going? Why is this suddenly a horror film? Um. <laughs> I, I think the main problem, like I say, is that it it's not that it becomes a horror film; it's that once it does become a horror film, mm. it's not very satisfying as a horror film. Um, no, no. I kept thinking it's going to kick off. It's going to kick off, uh, mm. and it does, but but not in a way that feels it. It, it kind of loses coherence as well towards the end. Not just in terms of yeah. storyline, but the way it's shot. There's a there's a lot of shaky cam, a lot of out of focus stuff, and I realise that is reflecting the way things are going crazy in the plot. But mm. um, 
it's just the kind of the coherence of the film seemed to collapse at that point. Yeah, there's, and there's not a lot of all for all that drama. There's not a lot of the snakes of that drama don't massively make their way into the rest of the movie. Um, no, basically for the first forty-five minutes, it's one thing, and I'd recommend that thing if you want a forty-five-minute drama about fracking. It does the job, and it even has, the, in a way, the horror element does come in. The there's real a, horror, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a tragic because you can see. I think there's, there's a wonderful bit where um, Adrian Barbo is sitting outside with a cup of tea, and she goes to drink it and then spits it out because the dust has got into it. Yeah, yeah. And just the look of disgust on her face, and she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, um, no, no. There's, there's, it's um, it's 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 a film that probably needs making. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Erin Brockovich type fracking fracking drama um yeah but but i do think i do i do concur with many of the reviews if you're gonna make a horror movie then then either get the horror going early or you know or foreshadow it at least or at least at the halfway point that's when things start going that's when we make a switch not at the in the final act (laughs) yeah yeah suddenly go here's some horror um, no, because I, I do respect horror that stays naturalistic and real world for a long way in, because that's absolutely. sometimes part of sed- part of seducing you into but they, the, the the supernatural of it. It's getting uh, you to buy into the characters but, and everything, but, and, and, but, I, and also that can be to do with building yeah. dread. And I think on all yeah. those levels, this would have worked, but it, it, but just yeah. like you say, because of the structure they well, chose, the, 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 it, it doesn't yeah, really the, work for me. The film, the films they sort of referenced when we were talking with films I love. I love a slow burn movie, and I could see yeah. they came from that sensibility. You know, the, the Witch or Exorcist or you know movies that do build dread. But the thing with the Exorcist is, is you don't go, oh my god, where's the devil come from? Because she's possessed by the devil quite early on. Yeah, um, and it opens in Iraq and in The Witch. It's yeah. called the witch, and you see a witch. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, yeah. early on, a baby gets murdered. You know, uh, spoilers, but it's like in the first five minutes. So you're not there going, oh, this is a weird tonal shift. <laughs> it builds yeah, red, yeah. but it, you know. Whereas th- this was a weird tonal shift that didn't just come halfway through. It came weirdly at the end. And, you know, well, I think we've we've spent. Uh, too much time on this um, compared to all the movies it's certainly a a fun conversation to have and and an interesting film when it comes to whether or not I'd recommend the movie I'd say yeah I'd recommend the first half of it as a powerful drama about fracking Mm -hmm. which has got a a tragic ending because in a way you know know where it's going before the horror comes in Um, Mm -hmm. so I'd recommend that but if you, but someone who's actually looking for a horror film, certainly a fun horror film, and a well plotted horror film, no, I, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it as that. No, no. Would I, you concur, Ian? I concur. That uh, mm. that much to recommend it, but yeah, it's it's a it's a sort of it is a misfire, ultimately. It, it's a shame. It is a real shame. Oh well, there we are. That's on Earth. Cheers, Ian. I feel sad now. OK, 
Okay, so we're back with Ian and Kirsty, and this time we're going to talk about The Oak Room, which is a movie that um, listeners may be familiar with, as Ian's interview with the director, Cody Callahan and actor Ari Millen, was um, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, Kirsty, however, you're the person who's seen it most recently. I mm-hmm. haven't seen it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've definitely seen it more recently than me. Yes. So can you give us a flavour of what The Oak Room's about, please? Yeah, so The Oak Room is a Canadian kind of indie... Um, I think it's a push to call it a horror. I'd call it a thriller. It's a nice, solid thriller. Um, the story revolves around Steve, who is a young prodigal son who's returned to his hometown um and he ends up at a local bar um just as it's closing um uh to basically kind of announce his presence um, and to collect some belongings that belong to his dad who passed away um and we find out that paul has been a bit of a naughty boy in the past he didn't come home for his father's funeral for example clearly kind of you know kind of owes some people um and the bartender um kind of makes a phone call to uh some we assume kind of somebody involved in crime who he owes um and essentially kind of insists that steve waits um for this arrival so the whole kind of film takes place in uh in the bar or uh, in bars even, um, because what they do to pass the time is to uh, kind of tell stories. Um, and kind of one principal story is also about a um, person entering a bar um, as it's closing. Um, and so interesting things are revealed. Um, and there is a lot of, you know, kind of, um, kind of enigma about, you, you know, what has Steve done? Um, and how is the story that he's telling kind of related to um, his present situation. So really intriguing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give Ian the first go now because I know from the tone of the interview the other week that Ian, you were quite impressed with the movie. Um, what did you think about it? You might want to unmute your mic before you answer. Uh, yeah, I I really like this film. Um, it was uh, I had a feeling it was sort of theatrical, but that but not in a bad way, as in. I was watching it going, this this is cinematic, but it also has the feeling of a theatrical piece. Um, and it turns out that's exactly where it started life. Um, Ari, uh, Ari Millen was in it um, in a fringe, uh, in a fringe production um, and then recommended it to Cody Callahan, um, who eventually read the play script on a plane and then phoned him up and said, okay, yeah, you were right. I'm sorry, it's taken me nearly a year to, uh, to get round to, uh, to taking you up on this. And then it went from there. So, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, but, but to say, to say to a film, oh, it feels like a play is a terrible thing to say. And it doesn't feel like a play in terms of it's just, it's because it's one location slash three locations because they're different bars. Um, yeah. Well, there's a good way and a bad way to to say that, isn't there? I mean, I I think it doesn't necessarily mean the movie's uncinematic. No, no, no. But but it it feels feels theatrical in a good way in that the dialogue is rich. You, you you know, it it, it spends a long time, it spends a long time on conversations um, and they... They sort of they sort of shot it very loosely just around 
in very long takes. Um, and they kind of filmed as they were rehearsing and then they, you know, they kind of rehearsed on camera getting into it. Um, and so it has that feel that they were allowed to really build up. You know, they didn't just do a few lines and then move on. They did massive, they did the whole scene like they would in, like they would on the stage. Um, so, so it's got that lovely feel to it. Um, and I think it really knows, it really, it really, it's, it's really confident in terms of theme and in terms of tone. Um, it's got, it's, it's, it's very dark heart to it. Um, which I think, um, as we were talking before we started recording, um, which is sort of the dead father. There's a scene with him. Um, and it's hard to talk about this film without going over spoilers, but the fact that his father's dead is, uh, is, uh, is not really a spoiler because that's there from the beginning. Um, mm. But yeah, there's a flashback with him and he, he sort of has the whole, he, he sort of has the dark heart of the thing is that he's a very broken man because he's just worked his ass off his whole life. His son went away and he just describes himself as being in hell and hell is just running out of time. So we're all in hell because we're all running out of time. And then that, that comes around to the fact that time is running out for some characters a lot quicker than for others. Um, but it's just, a, it's just a really, really tight and taut 90-minute um, piece with some great, great performances as well. Um, how did you feel about it, Kirsty? I, I completely agree with your assessment on it. It was, I, I, I mean, to kind of go back to thinking about kind of the deep ones is this felt like a, you know, it felt like a, a low budget film, but it felt like a low budget film who'd spent its money really, really wisely. And that is, you know, kind of good, good scripts, good actors, um, minimizing the, you know, the kind of, um, uh, you know, the kind of practicalities of shooting by limiting locations. Um, and the bits that aren't in that location are quite impressionistic um, and are really used really sparsely. Um, so yeah, I, 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 you know, thought it was really, really stylish. Um, it was, you know, it's kind of evident within the first sort of ten minutes that it's it's largely going to be a two-hander kind of thing, a kind of bottle movie um, to kind of co-op that phrase from, from television. But um, I, I also really liked when it went over the now. You know, <laughs> where the framing device is a you know these two people uh, in a bar, um, and now I'm going to tell a story about two people also in a bar. Um, so there's and then and then there's kind of times later where you've got a character who so somebody's telling a story and then the character in that story tells another story. Yeah. So you've got that layering of narratives which I really like, and that you know that invites you I think to see the you know the connections between the stories that you know. Yeah. I it's think it's very where, easy to mess up that kind of thing. Oh yeah. I think, I think this is where our review reviews like ours are useful as well because my heart sank a little bit, literally momentarily. I was like, I really like this, and then I was a bit like, this is a bit like that John Finnemore sketch, where on Radio Four, where he goes, mm -hmm. I will tell you a story, and then mm -hmm. I went to get that story, and this is how I met a man who met a man who met a man who thought he saw a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> this is, uh, but it, th this film, if you do have that slight wobble, rest assured yeah. it ties yeah. up brilliantly. Because no, there you go. I just had that slight, when you like something and you go, oh, I hope they've not just made a massive, horrible misstep. 
and I and, and they definitely haven't. It pull, it all no. does tie up. It's it's all there for a yeah. reason. It's not just being clever and passing the time like some student movie. Um, you know, they're not just chatting because I've watched Butterfly Dogs once and they're just chatting. Um, yeah, it's, it's all tied up together, and it's you know, and it and it's 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 a very brilliantly sparse. It's very economically written and brilliantly yeah. written and brilliantly structured piece. Um, and it and, and it does make it does you know it, it is circular so it is all there for a reason you're not just getting lost within these series of two-handers because it's it's a two-hander then they talk about another two-hander yeah. and then within that they talk about another two-hander um but when i was interviewing them they were sort of saying it was strange that a lot of them didn't meet each other because of the structure of yeah. the play you know uh, was, like, yeah. oh, who's who's got, who, which two-hander is it today I think I think from from a structural point of view though I think it was it was really really well handed and I think part of that is just the simplicity of you know a limited cast and you know and and, and not having to you know kind of worry too much about different locations and setting up what that means for the audience and but I like the 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 fact that the you know you you talked earlier about like it, you know sort of knowing what it was in terms of its theme so you know the idea of storytelling um, and how how you tell good stories is you know is part of the conversation that the film has, um, and the phrase kind of you know the gooting the truth I think making it more dramatic. And there, there are times I'm when glad you remembered that. I've been, <laughs> we've been speaking. I've been zooming around looking. Going, what's, it, yeah, yeah, what's, the, the what's the phrase they use? Goosing yeah. the truth. I kept thinking, um, polish the turd. No, it's not that. That's not <laughs> goosing the truth. Yeah, but then the the kind of the way in which the you know kind of one narrative is structured so that it you know kind of builds towards you know the kind of the end of the film that was really really well done, um, and yeah, and it was just it was I I love when I find a sort of little movie in that it's not you know it's not big studio it's not big budget and it you know the like you said it it could it feels a little bit like theatre because of, of its origins and because of the limitations, but it doesn't feel ever uncinematic. And I love the kind of films that don't have a big budget, but they spend it on, you know, kind of shots that look great and performances that are are, are solid and, you know, a really well-crafted script. And this, for me, ticked all those boxes. Yeah, and it's not a... It's, it's, because it's in Grimfest... Um, Grimfest always has this, I mean, all, all horror festivals doing that. They're kind of horror festival and actually there's a, a lot of films aren't straightforward horror and this is definitely yeah. one of them. This is, you know, there's no need for this to be in a horror festival, but it's brilliant that Grimfest have got it and are backing it. But it's it's a thriller, like you said. And so if, you, if you're one of the people who have bought tickets to only see gore and only see, mm. uh, then then this has got way too much talking for you. But if you like films, then you'll like this. And also the gore that is in it is fantastic. It's disturbing. Mm -hmm. And it involves the hacksaw oh. that is on the yeah. that is on the poster. And also there's a there's a really amazing bit with a piglet, which is dark yeah. as well. So it's not a horror yeah. movie, but it's definitely got some dark yeah. dark things. Um, yeah. And also, also the cast are fantastic. Um, RJ Mitte, we've already met Mitty, we already mentioned who people will know as Walter Junior in Breaking Bad. Um, he's like the he's like the asshole prodigal son who comes home. Uh, and then Peter Outerbridge is a sort of grizzled, grizzled um, barkeep um, and friend of his father, um, who I hadn't heard of before. Um, 
but he's uh, he's had he's had quite a career. He was in Saw Six, um, Lucky Number Eleven, Mission to Mars, uh, many many things. Um, but um, and then I think the real it's not much of a discovery because lots of people already know Harry Millen really well because he was in Orphan Black, but I've never watched Orphan Black. Um, but but he's he's an absolutely fantastic actor, <laughs> Harry mm. Millen, um, and who plays plays one of the characters in this. Um, would would you agree? Have you heard? Have you watched Orphan Black before, Kirsty? Uh, yeah, I've seen the first couple of seasons, but yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I don't, I don't know when he comes into it because I think he might be a. He was a, when he was talking about it. It was a minor character who yeah. was great. Gets written into it full time. Yeah, it wasn't a, a kind of uh, you know. I think there's there's a sense, that particularly I think with Canadian actors, is that they're you know because of how American television production has moved, you know, kind of north of the border. Um, a lot of those faces are you know perhaps more familiar than we might you know kind of first appear. So I was definitely kind of IMDbing not while I was watching the film because it was just too. Plugged yeah. into it, but after yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. who these people were. Yeah, well, one um, thing they said yeah, in the so interview is, is, is they were really, they set it in Canada as well. It's a Canadian writer. Yeah. It's set in Canada and they all got to be Canadian. Well, yeah. we were talking Orphan Black. They sort of said they were a bit North American-ish. Everyone could assume it was America to start with and then yeah. it became a hit around the world as a Canadian thing. So then mm. they started making it definitely set in Toronto. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the other thing at the moment that I've I've been really, really watching that is uh, is definitely Canadian um, has been Shit's Creek. So this is tonally very, very different. <laughs> and uh, yes, feels this feels much more Canadian. I've not watched Shit's Creek. Um, oh. This will be the time for our traditional Hannibal reference, Kirsty, oh, because yes, yes, I think yeah. that's a very Canadian show, isn't it? It is. Though, well, well, yes. It's I mean, not it was, set in Canada at all. No, it was, it was made, made in Toronto. Toronto so, so, yeah. yeah. And, the, and like directors on it, like Vincenzo Natale, and it doesn't really hide it. You can see that it's Canada. No, absolutely. However, can I just not, I mean, but you, you, you mentioned that though, Dan. It wasn't me. Can I just say, not me, you did. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's well, true. I just thought I'd take the opportunity. Wow. <laughs> what, I, what I've seen of Hannibal, it's nothing but forests, and they are the forests out of the X Files, which is also <laughs> Canada. So, right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, but then I guess they do have massive forests in uh, mm. just over the border. Jeez. So uh, mm. <laughs> um, anyway, but um, uh. You were going to say something about Shit's Creek, and I think. Oh yeah, well Shit's Creek, I just never seen it, and now it's got lots of Emmys, and even more of a clamour to go and watch it. Mm. Um, is it actually <laughs> funny? Is the yes, yes. Uh, lots of it's... people loved The Good Place, and I got very bored of that very quickly. Okay. Oh, so, I uh, thought that was great, but I know that um, our friend Steve Kane, who is on this podcast talking about Halloween three uh-huh. uh, ages ago now, he loved Shit's Creek. Yes, yeah. convincing me to watch it. I've not it's done lovely. so yet. It's lovely. Obviously, not at all horrific, but it's good to mention all good stuff. Yes, yeah. that's that's another recommendation. So yeah. you're both very very positive on the Oak Room, yeah. then. I think that's a recommendation for you, from you both. Yeah, it's yeah. a River movie as well. So obviously, it won't it won't you know. Be, packing out the multiplexes or anything so it, well, what it, will well, well, that <laughs> is true but it, it needs it will need every dollar it yeah so uh everybody yeah. 
everybody who hears this, go and go and buy it, listen to it. Yeah, so even if you're not going to Grimfest, oh well, but, but, but Grimfest has already happened by the time you they yes. hear this. So. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't catch it at Grimfest, then mm. uh, then yeah, go and buy the DVD. Yeah, I imagine it'll probably turn up at some point, won't it, on a streaming service? I would, so, I, I, yes, I would hope I'm sure so. Although yeah. it's, it is, it's a weird mixed blessing. A, I don't know how much they get paid if you no. on Amazon or whatever, but also. Lots of stuff just gets buried. I don't know. Yeah. Why, I don't know what the Netflix thinking is, but they, if they had, surely if they had a this week on, you know, if they had like a little, you know, a little program of here's what to watch or magazine. you get emails, don't you, know, telling you know, what's yeah, come but, up? But they hardly flag everything up. It's just a bit like mm. the algorithm will serve you what you want. Do not choose <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's hope obey the algorithm. algorithm. That yeah, it, goes, yeah. it just goes to YouTube or, or Amazon, then, yeah. but but on a paid rental, and lots of people pay to rent it because I'm sure the money must go. Yeah. At least some of the money will go to them then. Yeah, yeah. Probably only eighty percent goes to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair shake, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, you got to take yeah. comfort in that these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, right. it's, well, thank- it's a cracking little low-budget movie. That's fantastic. That's um, a recommendation that our listeners can take home with them. So thank you very much for that, Ian, and thank you, Kirsty. Thank you. Okay, so I'm here with Ian, and the movie we're going to talk about now is one which we interviewed about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. We spoke to writer-director Bria Grant about her film 12-Hour Shift, um, which is... Well, I'm just going to come out and say I think it's a delightfully random, thrilling and funny movie that is horrific enough to to fit into a horror film festival. Um, But it's a lot of things as well besides a horror. And it's basically a story about um, a nurse played by Angela Bettis, who works in uh, it's an American hospital. Um, Off the top of my head, I can't remember the town, Ian. I think you brought it up. You said why? Oh, it's Arkansas, I think. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, it's Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. the so state is Arkansas. So it's um, an Arkansas hospital in just before the millennium in 1999, yeah. and um, this nurse is embarking on a 12-hour night shift, but she has a bit of a um, a job on the side, which is that she supplies uh, organs to the black market from deceased patients. Um, And she has made the mistake, it turns out quite early in the movie, of employing, I think, her sister-in-law as a courier to get... Her her cousin, I do believe, but yeah. Oh, cousin, yeah, that's right, sorry. Cousin by marriage. I think that's a key point. Oh, maybe. (laughs) To get get organs to essentially the mob. but it doesn't. Things do not go to plan, and um, basically the night shift escalates from there into increasing chaos. And another random element that's kind of brought in, kind of in the background, but becomes prominent in a, a couple of occasions, is that um, a killer has just been apprehended and injured in the apprehension, and is brought into the hospital to recover. And uh, he's played by David Arquette. Yeah. He's also a producer on the movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
<laughs> and basically, it's the, the whole movie is, well, it's not entirely set within the hospital. There are scenes outside it, but it kind of feels uh, appropriately claustrophobic. There is a sense of craziness going on uh, in this hospital, which is quite well depicted. Um, as I mentioned to Bria in our interview, you know, you get a lot of hospitals in horror movies that are just spooky, empty shells with nobody in or hardly anyone in. But this feels like a working hospital. There's new patients being brought in all the time. There's people being discharged. There's various staff around all the time on their breaks and whatever. Yeah. And in the middle of all this commotion, um, Angela Bettis, who's fantastic, is trying to keep her shift going and keep her underhanded kind of um, uh, organ uh, business uh, under wraps and police are also around because this killer's been brought into the hospital and things like this and basically the, the plot just continues to spiral and spiral I really enjoyed this movie um, yeah, what did you think too. Ian? No I, I, I loved it as well it's uh, it's the only thing I was there questioning was why is it set in 1999 and actually it kind of it doesn't it could be set now you'd still but but because it is set in 1999 and then as i thought about it and elements came in i was like actually this is a, a late 90s caper movie one of those movies that was made after pulp fiction like killing zoe or or um go or those sort of movies where they're an ensemble piece it's underworld it's scabbiness but with that sort of almost music video funkiness um, yeah. and and low life hitmen with with awful ponytails um and it's got a yeah. few of those in it um and then because it's got david arquette who's mr mr 90s yeah um, that kind of flags it up so so yeah so me being Mr. Fussy again. Well, why is it set in 1999? Actually, it's... Well, there it, is ultimately a slight it, plot justification for that, but it doesn't come until very near the end. There's a little but, bit of, there's a little bit of uh, millennium. But it, it is a bit tenuous. Very tenuous. Um, um, but but like, like Bria said in our interview, she also, that's when she wanted to set it because that's when she thought, that's when she sort of, she was young, um, younger than she is today. Um, that's kind of her, that was her era. Um, mm. And also there is the fact that not everyone's walking around with mobile phones and, and there's a certain, there's a, there's a certain style to it that, um, that, so it does, you know, I don't mind that it's set in 1999, that's for sure. No, um, and the hospital, the hospital setting, which is a real hospital. It's like the bot they got, access to the bottom of a hospital um while it was being fitted out um right. and and it's a brilliant set which they make amazing use of like you say they populate it with lots of extras um but not not so many it feels like a night shift but it feels like a working hospital also looks like a grim hospital like it looks right. like a hospital that needs a good deep clean but right. yeah. in a realistic way like i wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to undergo surgery in that hospital. Um, but then that is the American healthcare system. Um, but um, yeah, and, and like you say, I, I love the scabbiness of it. The, you know, Angela Bettis is, she's not, 
you know, she's she's a drug addict. She's she's very much an anti-hero, but she's got real emotional depth as well. All this sort of craziness going on, but it's not it's not just a surface movie. Yeah, it's no, she. It's got lots of depth to it, and she is absolutely fantastic. She is, and as a character, she's not exactly sympathetic, but she is engaging, mm. and you do come to care about her. And yeah. even empathise with her a little bit in certain aspects. Yeah, it's, it's really quite well written. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And she's uh, she she she's basically just got no time for anyone. And and the people that she's she's kind of put up against, really preppy, churchy, dickheads. Um, and so you're kind of on her side when she's just telling them to fuck off. And and, and mm. she's got no time for their shit. <laughs> um, and, and and her cousin by marriage is is a sort of crazy. I mean, she turns out to be murderous and psychotic, but she's also she starts off by going, you know, even though she works for gangsters and she's helping with this organ harvesting, she sort of very much. Oh my god, can you believe they're teaching evolution at school? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, completely, completely no, no self awareness. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, there's so, there's so many good things going on, and then that's just sort of the setup, and we haven't even got onto the fact that there are this music sounds amazing. Yeah, the stunning avant-garde jazzy music score by Matt Glass, who was also the cinematographer yeah, of the, the film. Cinematographer, uh, and then it's not just the great music, but they have little flashes of weird weird dance sequences oh yeah yeah which are kind of which aren't which aren't fantasy they are this is what the characters are doing which feels very night shift as well it feels like these people the sleep deprivation and and amphetamines running through running through the movie you know people these meth heads either the patients or the nurses are, uh, <laughs> are uh, yeah. haven't slept enough. Everyone's everyone's wired and grinding their teeth, and uh, and uh, and and when it gets down to it, the the sort of violence and the bloodletting is uh, is very pleasing as well. Yeah, it is for those gorehounds out there. It's not a horror movie, like you said. Um, mm. That's not its tone. It's uh, no. it's a it's, uh, it's a scary, not frightening. It's a, it is no, horrific. No. Yeah, it is it's, tense it's, in places. It's a scabby '90s caper movie. Mm. Um, um, you know, and I mean that in the best sense of <laughs> the word. It's uh, you know, it's it's very grimy. Yeah. And grungy, and I guess grunge is probably the best word because of the '90s. Um, and yeah. and it's got that amazing, amazing song at the end. Yeah. Well, yes, although we have to say that unless people saw it at Grimfest, they, they won't, or another festival, they won't yeah. hear that song. Yeah, um, yeah. It's um, you explained to us. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's uh, Palmer. Tell me. Amanda Palmer. Amanda Palmer. Yeah. Mrs. Neil Gaiman. Um, mm. It's, uh, yeah, Amanda Palmer's version of... Uh, of a Daniel Johnston movie and it ends and it's brilliant. It's a brilliant song anyway. And then Amanda Palmer's version is just astounding. And, um, but they've only got festival rights. Um, yeah. So, so basically so it's, it's a reason to see it at a festival. 
uh, yes. the Grimfest or wherever else it's playing because because the movie will be released very soon I think on on VOD and things like that yeah. so unless, um, unless, unless, unless anybody who anybody who watches it there won't hear that song no no unless there's some sort of miraculous because music's sometimes the most expensive thing in movies yeah, yeah. it's uh it's uh God, what was I hearing a thing about the other day? It cost, it cost like two hundred thousand dollars to. Uh, yeah, it's Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. Oh, it right. cost two hundred thousand dollars to have uh, to have the song at the end. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, but which is one of the most expensive parts of the movie. Um, but yeah, but to go, we definitely have to have this song, and it's two hundred thousand um, dollars to just wow. play the song in a movie and it's uh i can't remember the bloody song anyway we're not here to talk about romeo and michelle's high school musical um high school reunion yes reunion, i've got yeah, it on yeah. tape i've never seen it it's, i remember uh, it coming out very well it was a really it was that podcast uh, um the rule of three you know the comedy podcast which is oh fantastic. no i don't know that one. Oh my god that's right. a really good podcast put it on the Okay. on the bottom and we're right. because we'll uh, do. they don't they don't really need our help because they're uh they, they won an award i think and they're right. they're they're two quite they're two well-established comedy writers in in british comedy and their list of guests are it's pretty amazing there's eddie Izzard's on there and lucy preble and and you know all, all manner of people right. But it's, uh, okay. it's, it's it's a fantastic podcast. But yes, Ooh. that was just that just popped in my head. But yeah, but this so, song, this song at the end um, is it, it it will still be good because I'm sure they'll put something equally equally lo-fi and yeah and and well, and it's just a really well, Ian, good just, ending, a really good ending for the film, isn't it? It is a fantastic ending actually. Uh, with or without the song, I think that it's it's a wonderful ending. Mm. Um, but just so the listener doesn't go insane, Ian, you mentioned that podcast then. What was the relevance to Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion or whatever? Oh, because the last, Red, scene, why... the last, the last scene of the last scene of Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion is is a song at the end, right? Um, and that's what I've got to Google. And but what's the relevance to the podcast? Was that the was was it the podcast? Oh, no, no, because no, yeah, they have. Rule of Three, every every episode of Rule of Three, their guest brings in some com- a, a thing from comedy that they love, and somebody right. picks Romeo and Michelle as their favourite thing. Um, right, okay. And and it's a film I've never watched because, and it made me want to go and watch it actually because right. I've never I've just gone well that's that's you know I've never really heard amazing things about it, but it sounds amazing. Um, and it, it's the high school reunion movie from '97 that isn't Gross Point Blank. Yeah, yeah. And I, if I remember correctly, it's the one with Mira Sorvino and Lisa Kudrow. It is, yes, Mira Sorvino and Lisa Kudrow. Um, mm. And that's right, it's Cindy Lauper's Time After Time. Right. Okay. And I think in the podcast they sort of say that basically it's the most joyous scene you can ever see, and it's made me really want to see it. Um, right. Because apparently it's just a joyous, a joyous scene, and it was worth every penny, every cent of the two hundred thousand dollars they spent having right. Cindy Lauper's time after time. Um, but yeah, 
you might want to edit quite a lot of this now. Uh, I don't think so, Ian. I think I've decided oh, right. already just... to leave it all in. Oh, um... <laughs> okay, so I'll just start but... quoting Bad Boy Bubby, and then you'll have to. Uh... But, but... <laughs> don't like smoke. Don't you do? <laughs> don't you do? <laughs> I... You son. Um, but well, yeah. Now you've discovered that that's what you have to do if you ever want to get me to edit is yes. to use that word. But um, but back to twelve hour shift. I think we both yeah. very strongly recommend this movie. Yeah, um, it will soon be very widely available. I understand. Yeah. Um, so you should be able to find Deservedly it. But like so. we say, if you want to hear that song, look for other film festivals. Yeah, it's it's uh very much. Uh, wonder if it will pop up on YouTube. But uh, but uh, it's uh, it is fantastic. Also, we should mention that. Bria Grant, this is her sort of feature film directorial debut. Yeah, she's an actress, isn't she? Who, she yeah, yeah, well, listeners obviously. may know from Heroes, mm-hmm. um, from movies like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, my favourite film of all yeah. time. And Dexter, um, she was in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But she's, uh, but, but she's, she's director for TV, uh, Pandora and East Siders, which I believe she's also in. But this is her first, this is her first full-length feature and she also writes it so uh based on this and also when we interviewed her she was lovely and yeah very warm and and you know just just you could you know a good soul as i think americans say um she uh but yeah definitely definitely i reckon this won't be the last time we see a bria grant movie come yeah, out. It's, it's got great focus yeah um so she's in the right place Definitely tell stories on film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a definite thumbs up from us both, I think. Yep, two thumbs up for that one. Nice one, <laughs> Ian. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right, folks, that's the end of our first batch of Grimfest 2020 reviews. We'll be back next week on Friday with a few more. Hope you enjoyed these. I'm Dan. Take care of yourselves. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited Presented by Kirsty Warrow, Ian Winterton Stella Gaynor and T.D. Velasquez Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops. <laughs>